I'm going to ask you to turn in the Bible to Titus. Titus chapter 1. We're going to look at the last part of this chapter, verse 10 uh, through verse 16. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where your adrenaline was rushing and you felt within your being that you had to defend. Um, there's moments we don't often won't in our life, but sometimes they happen. Um, there's just been a, a few, but as a, as a guy, I'm always thinking, how can I defend? Uh, if ever need be, I've tried to show my wife where the shotgun is and how to uh, shoot it, you know, and she says she wanted a handgun. I said, well, I do too, you know, that'd be kind of neat. I said, but you know, you need a shotgun. Uh, and, you know, these are the type of conversations that you have when you think about defending. Um, I remember I've shared, relayed this story with you one time because it just stands out. But there's a time when we were hiking and the girls were little, and uh, we encounter a bear uh, there, and um, you know you, you feel the adrenaline rush of encountering uh, a bear. And I had no shotgun, uh, I had no handgun. Uh, I did have my pocket knife, and I did have a, a nice club. Um, and uh, here I had Carissa on my back. Uh, one of those little backpacks, you know, and she was just cackling away as a as a two year old might do, and I'm I'm doing this number trying to look big, you know, and uh, I don't think it, in, it intimidated the bear. I, I don't know why it didn't intimidate the bear, but I, you know, there's this moment where you you feel the adrenaline rushing, and you know that your life could end, and it'll be okay if someone's saved at that moment in time and um, hopefully we don't have experiences like that in our life uh, but sometimes they could and and there's moments when you feel like a she-bear of, of someone I'm going to rise up and defend those that are to me well in Paul's letter to Titus it was one of these moments where he says to Titus there is a ministry that elders are to do of confronting, confronting, the ministry of confrontation. Um, this is not one that we often say, okay, let me look forward to learning about that. But it is important to know that it is a ministry. In other words, it is a service that is to be done. And much the same way as, as a, a man might lay down his life for his family to serve them uh, in any given situation. Uh, an elder is to uh, confront, if need be, when it comes to the doctrine, to the belief, the faith of the church itself. And so I want to take some time to talk about that, the ministry of confrontation. Uh, in Titus chapter 1, verses uh, 5 through 10, uh, 5 through 9, he lists qualifications of who elders are to be, what kind of qualities are sh should be in their life. It's very much akin to 1 Timothy 3. But he ends uh, verse 9 saying that above all, above all these things, one thing he must do, he must hold firm the trust worthy word as taught an elder asked the question what does the bible say in regards to any situation in a church and that is to be the uh, preemptive question for the elder what does god's word say what is god's will as best as we can determine so that he may be able to give instruction sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it and so all this 
character that's there. One of the end goals is that if need be, there is a ministry of confrontation. And so we're going to read verse 10. And and this is God's word as we read this. And I want us as a church to recognize that by standing. As we read this, if you read silently and I read aloud to you. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You may be seated. Well, we don't hear words like that much anymore, do we? Uh, Paul just kind of lays it all right there on the line uh, and, and calls it exactly as he sees it. And I don't think he's holding back. Um, and so let's look at this. There's one command that kind of stands out as we read this. And uh, we read it right there in, in verse 11. They must be silenced. Uh, and then later on, they must be rebuked sharply. Uh but it makes you wonder, who on earth does Paul say they must be silenced? And that's, there's no gray area in there, is there? It's, they have to stop talking. They have to end their influence. Do what you need to do to make sure that this influence is silenced. So what on earth does Paul say that the elders are to be engaged in in silencing certain people? And you just don't hear that from many pastors you think of pastors that hopefully there is some gentleness about them and then and the bible instructs that but then here there is a a silencing aspect that is to take place well uh, as we read in this passage let's first see in verse 10 the behavior of the men of the people who must be silenced uh first of all he says in verse 10 that they are insubordinate insubordinate they have a rebellious Attitude. Uh, when we wonder and we look at this, what is it they are insubordinate to? What are they rebellious against? You can read uh, from up above and you realize that they are rebellious against the gospel. You see this in verse 14. They are the ones turning away from the truth, the truth being the gospel. There are some people who have a disposition that if you are an authority, then you are an enemy of some sort. You see this in, in various ages all throughout. It's interesting that when you see it, particularly in, in guys, they have a problem with authority. Perhaps maybe their their dad wasn't uh, what they thought they ought to be or whatever reasons for it. It's interesting. You see it in every sphere of their life that if there's an authority person, they rebel against it. Interesting enough how many of these people end up in the military. I don't know how that is, but for many of them, they just end up in the army where they learn about authority in such very strict language. I, I don't know why that is, but it's often the case. And so here this person is, is that they are rebellious in 
and authority, but particularly the authority of God. And when you have a problem with authority, be it your parents or other authority figures in your life that have been placed there by God, the real problem, the spiritual root, is that you have a problem with God. Now, no one wants to admit that. But when you look down into the heart of why they rebel, you cannot separate it from God, who is the ultimate authority in their life and who places these authority figures in their life. And so they are insubordinate to God and subordinate to the gospel. Now, another quality was the behavior of these who must be silenced. They are, are empty talkers and deceivers. Uh, empty talkers and deceivers. They can talk well. When you hear them, you want to listen to them. You want to be around them. You enjoy their conversations. But along the way, you start to realize that it's mostly conversation, mostly talk, not much work with it. Not much action there with it, not a character that comes with it. And so, consequently, they're deceivers. I'm, I, when I come across those who are Jehovah's Witnesses, they come to our door just like they come to your door. And uh, it's interesting when they come, I can tell right away because their publications have a certain look about it. And then always look for the New World Translation, uh, things like that, Watchman Tower. And, and they just talk well because they they talk about they complain about the times the moral climate that we're in and then they say you know wouldn't it be great if everybody read the bible and were people of the book and we're like yeah that sounds good and they sound like any other believer you might come across but then they kind of don't mention how their bible has been changed uh from your bible they don't volunteer that information uh, they don't talk about how different they are in their faith versus how an Orthodox Christian would believe. They don't mention these things. And so they good talkers, and they're easy to talk to. Uh, then he says that these people specifically in Crete, uh, they're not only insubordinate into talkers and deceivers, but uh, especially those of the circumcision party. So he's aligning them with a group. Now, in Crete, there was a large Jewish population. Many of the believers uh, that were in Crete may have come during the Pentecost time when they were in Jerusalem and hearing Peter, and, and many were converted. Many of them may have come back to Crete during that time. But they come out of a godly culture. In other words, their culture, the Jewish one, was one of how can we honor God? But here's the problem. They had a difficulty separating godliness from their culture of godliness. Do you realize there's a difference between godliness and the culture of godliness? And here these Jews that grew up with understanding that if you do these actions, you eat this amount of food, you don't do this action on Saturday, and you celebrate this way, you do not hang out with this group of people, and you don't eat these things, you don't allow these things to be in your body, then you will be godly. And they had this culture around godliness, but they've added all these rules to it, and so now, when they see godliness, they don't even recognize it. Because it's been so distorted with their culture of godliness. For those of us who grow up in church, we have to listen carefully and pay attention to make sure that what we are receiving and that we hold on to is not just tradition, but really is what God says. Verse 11, they must be silenced. They must be silenced. I, um, 
we went camping a number of years ago uh, when we had our dog. And uh, we went to Falls Lake, and uh, our dog loved to go swimming. And so we thought, this is a great opportunity. We're going to go and let the dog go swimming. And he'll wear himself out, and he'll just go asleep right there next to our, our camper. That was the vision. It never works like that. I did not uh, estimate the effect that fire would have on my dog. When the fire started, it's like he had never seen fire in its life. And some primal instinct told him that he must bark. And he must bark loud. And he must not stop barking until it stops flaming. Now that's a real problem in a campground. <laughs> no problem in my house. Uh, but I'm trying to, you know, I don't know how to get the dog to stop. <laughs> and finally the, the ranger says, you know what? That dog's got to go. I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? It was, you know, late at night. and So no, that dog's got to go right now. Because there are families out here and they can't sleep for that dog and I had to do an extra trip that night and take the dog back home and come back. It had to be silenced. Why? Because of the effect. Notice what's happened here in verse 11. The effect of men who must be silenced. We looked at the behavior of those who must be silenced, but what's the effect? They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families. Upsetting whole families. Now the idea is households. And as when the word's used for household, it could refer to families, or it could be referring to groups of people that are meeting in houses. It could be referring to whole small groups of people within a church that they are, uh, they're having this effect, a contagious effect of their faith being disturbed and upturned. Uh, and so the whole church is being affected by this because of that, because it's not isolated to just one person. It has effect that goes across. There must be a silencing that takes place. And so that's the effect here in verse 11 that Paul is bringing out. The, what's the motivation of those who must be silenced? Well, they're teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. The motivation behind this is pure selfish. Pure selfish. And it seems to imply a financial aspect of this, that they have found out some way to gain influence and money by turning people away from the gospel and turning them to themselves. Now, you know that that is happening everywhere. It's happening not just in America. I've already shared with you that it was that program that came out called the Preachers of L.A. Uh, and some of the things that they were saying on that of just this flat-out materialism that if we are uh, going to be followers of God, then it is rightful to assume that we're going to have the material blessings that come with that. And so they teach that, they preach that, and that's going around in other places all over the world. This idea of material blessings that come. The blessing that comes with Christ is Jesus. And there is to be nothing that supplants Jesus as the supreme blessing of our life. To have within him life with God, joy with God, forgiveness and relationship with the Lord. And so the motivation here is that of selfishness. And then notice they're teaching for sinful game what they ought not to teach. They are adding to the gospel things unnecessary. And so you have the idea of works being added to the gospel. It says that you're saved by grace through faith. 
We're going to see some other passages that, that alludes to this. But it seems that there has a, there is a picture of legalism that's being brought into this. Legalism that says that, you know what, God's going to accept you on the basis of what you do. That's the idea of legalism. God's accepting you on the basis of what you do. So therefore, do more and don't do bad. And therefore, God might accept you. And the better you do, the more God accepts you, the more God loves you. Then that is just not what the Bible teaches when he says God loves you while you're still a sinner. He sent his son to die for you. And so the grace is given to you at the point of your bankrupt spirit and you are in a well-received place before God because of the grace of God. So we read on, we've looked at the motivation of these who must be silenced. we looked at the effect of those who who must be silenced. We've seen the behavior. Uh, Let's look a little bit more at the character. What are they known for? (laughs) Verse 12 is one of the more colorful passages uh, that you find in the Scripture. He quotes... Um, what was probably Epimedes uh, that was of Crete who came uh, about 500 years before Paul. And so he was well known uh, as, as a writer uh, of Greek culture. Uh, and so he seems to be quoting him uh, when he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So what he's appealing to is that, you know, one of your own has said this about you, Cretans. Um, and just, I've kind of researched a little bit and found that one of the things that Cretans were known for was boasting, was uh, boasting that Zeus was buried in Crete. Now, that may think, well, what's the big deal? Well, if you worship Zeus and you believe Zeus is a god and then someone says that Zeus is buried in Crete, well, you've got a problem. And you think, you think, you're thinking really high of yourself, aren't you, Crete? Because uh, first of all, Zeus is a god and he's not buried. And, and so that's kind of what Cretan was known for was this boastful claim, but it came to name, uh, came to mean a, 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 a cheating, deceiving type person. In fact, the word Cretanize meant to deceive, coming from the land Crete. So you know you're bad when your very name means that you're deceitful. I mean, if, if Nightdale starts making a, a new vocabulary, and known for uh, bad, you know you're in, a, you're in a tough spot, all right? But the good news is the gospel is effective here. It doesn't matter where you're at, whether you're in your Las Vegas or any other known place, the gospel is effective. <clears throat> and so Paul says, all right, Epimedes made the statement, and I'm going to use it, and I'm going to apply it. And he's not applying it, I don't think, to Cretans across the board, but he's applying it to these false teachers. You also are a liar. You're an evil beast. You're a lazy glutton. Those are harsh words, but Paul is calling it as it is. And he says this testimony is true. Now, that's a little bit about the men who are to be silenced. What's the reaction? What's the reaction? Well, the reaction we see in verse uh, 13, Therefore rebuke them sharply. Sharply. It's, it's the idea of seeing gangrene in your, your skin and your leg. And you, it's one of those things that, you know, one of our popular remedies is just give it a little bit of time and it'll go away. Well, that doesn't work with gangrene. And so the only remedy is to take a sharp knife and remove that area. 
So when he's saying rebuke them sharply, it's that same picture, that same metaphor of there is an infectious disease that is threatening the health of the body, is already messing up households. It must be cut away. This toxic teaching must be removed. But notice the motivation. What is the the, the reaction here? Is to rebuke sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. That's the point. The point is not to humiliate people. The point is not to embarrass them, uh, to call them out, to demonize them. The point is to say, you know what? You have left the faith and your life is in jeopardy and now you're jeopardizing the spiritual health of many others for the sake of your faith, for the sake of the gospel. Let me rebuke you sharply. The goal is to see faith restored. I think that we have trouble confronting. We don't want to be misinterpreted. We don't want to be hated. Anything critical said about us. But we've got to be careful. Because what's weighing in the balance is how much do we value faith? How much do we value eternal life? And our lives as well in the lives of others. And we've got to be careful because we cannot let our desire for comfort and to be well-liked to trump faith. Sound faith. And that's the idea that he's telling the elders. He's, Paul is saying, he says to Titus, you need to do this and you need to get others to help you in doing this. Isn't that right, Carissa? 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 Okay, And so, some things are more important than whether or not you need to be well-liked. All right, And that's the value of this. And so, notice verse 14. They're not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. He's seeing these people, and they are getting allured, uh, turned away by folks who speak well. But what's their authority? What are they looking to? They're not looking to the Scripture. They're looking to Jewish myths, things added on, the culture of godliness. So the speculation is going beyond Scripture. It's going to more man-centered things rather than Christ-centered things. Things. It's more humanistic than Christ-centered. Paul says they've got to be confronted. They've got to be denounced, those who turn away from the faith. Notice, what does it mean when it says they turn away from the faith? These are people who are in the church. There are people who have heard the gospel, who have received it to some degree, but then was lured away. He's talking about people that were in the churches of Crete. I read this, and I think about passages of the Old Testament. Isaiah twenty nine thirteen, The Lord says, Because this people draw near with their mouth, and honor me with the lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a command, a commandment taught by men. He says, they're, they're trying, and they're doing all the rituals, but their heart is not seeking God. That's one of the questions we have to ask ourselves. Are we seeking God? 
It doesn't matter what the rituals we're doing, but are we seeking the Lord? Mark chapter 7, Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, that this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say that if man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. If we're not careful, sometime in following what we have as man-made convictions, we can flat out not love someone. We can be brutal to people. But we're saying, I'm following my convictions, I'm following my traditions, but at the same time, we're not loving someone. That's what Jesus called them on. You have to honor your father and mother and love them, but you've got these traditions and now you've made it exempt and you don't love them anymore. But you're okay with that because you're following tradition. And so, verse 15, we come to the judgment. The judgment of these who must be silenced. What, what is the verdict? Verse 15. To the pure, the clean, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. What's he saying here? Why you do what you do matters. If you are not operating out of faith and you're doing rituals because you think that it's going to make you better before God and more accepted by God, then what you're doing is not good. It is a sin. Because you're not trusting in God. You're trusting in your works. In fact, Romans 14, verse 23 says that whatever does not flow from faith is sin. We, uh, I was washing dishes the other day and I was looking at the, the sippy cups. So we've had sippy cups now for 13 years. <laughs> About ready to get rid of sippy cups and booster seats and things like that. And, um, but some of these cups are just flat out disgusting. Uh, you look at uh, the way these cups work, you know, they've got this lid to it and they've got spill proof lids. And, and they have this little plastic or rubber stopper in them so that if it ever flows out or tips over, it doesn't flow out. The problem is those little rubber plastic stoppers are really hard to clean. I mean, they just stuff gets stuck in there and, and it becomes evident. And you could have a, uh, a cup, totally clean cup, looks good. You can put great liquids in there. You could have good juice in there. You could have milk in there. You could have clear, clean water in there. You can give it to your child and your child will drink and And you open it up and you say, this is gross. Because it doesn't really matter how clean the cup was, how good the liquid was. It all has to filter through this little stopper and it's just filled with mildew. (laughs) Y'all weren't hungry anymore now. (laughs) And it's it colors everything. What he's saying is that life 
If, if, if you are not trusting in Christ, if, if, if you are not embracing and all that Jesus has done for you, and that your whole hope, your whole hope is nothing but what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross, if that's not the case, and you in your mind are thinking that, okay, that's nice and good, but let me add to it, let me depend on something else, let me just count on church membership, let me count on, on, on good disciplines, let me count on, on refraining from evil things in this world, if that's the case, you could go to communion, you could read the Bible, you can memorize verses, but it's going to be as clear water going through a mildew filter. It's not going to be good because it's not out of faith. It's defiled. You're not trusting in God. It is nothing more but dressed up, socially, religiously polite sin. Now, that's a hard thing to say. But you could read the Bible, and if it's not of faith, it's not producing good. It's bringing condemnation in your life. You could go to church. You could go to some of the best churches in the country. Hear God's Word taught. But if you are going because you think it improves your status before God, it is a sin. You can fast and you can go for 40 days without eating. But if you're doing it so that you think you're improving your status before God, you have 40 days of sin. The idea is that these were coming in the church and say, well, you know, it was enough to have the gospel. You've got to also uh, perform these Jewish rules. You've got to perform these things that man have said that, that pertains to godliness. Paul is saying, No. To the pure, all things are pure. If you believe that Christ is enough, you're trusting in that. Then as he taught Peter, you can eat food that is richly unclean, but it will be clean before you. As he taught Peter, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you can hang out with Gentiles. And it is a good thing when you're trusting in Christ. These are the lessons that Paul was learning. When a person is pure in heart and mind, his perspectives on all things are pure. That inner purity produces an outer purity. Tragically, tragically, the opposite is also true. When a person is corrupt and impure in heart and mind, his perspective on all things are corrupt and impure. And that impure, uh, the inner impurity produces an outer impurity. Someone can be religious, but in pride... There's a, a stench about their character. Because it's not one of faith, of the grace of God working in our life. You know, you could do the same thing not with just religious things. You can have your own moral conduct and say, as long as I, I'm honest to myself, <laughs> then I'm going to be good with God. At least I'm not like those hypocrites in church. But oh, you are. You are thinking that by adhering to your own moral conduct that somehow you're a better person. And when it comes down to it, you, like everyone else, also needs to hear that you are bankrupt in spirit before God. And you need the grace of God. We read in, in Romans 14, verse 20 through 23, Paul is hitting on the same theme. He says, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is one for anyone to make another 
stumble by what he eats. It's wrong for another one to make an, another one stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink or wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he proves. For what forever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It doesn't matter how good your cup is. If it's not of faith, it's defiled. Verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're professors of faith. They're in a church. They're members of but they're not operating out of faith and grace. So notice what verse 16 says. They are detestable. Now that word is as bad as it sounds. What's ironic about this is that if they are indeed of the circumcision group, they're the ones who are always saying, oh, that, you shouldn't do that. That's wicked. That's evil. That's sin. That's abomination. And the tables are totally turned. And, and Paul is saying, you know, if you're not operating on faith, you are detestable. What does that mean? It causes horror, horror and disgust to God. You need to understand that apart from Jesus Christ and his grace in our life, that's how we all are. It doesn't matter how good you are. You can be Mother Teresa and be that good. But if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, it is nothing more but pride dressed up. And we are disgusting to God. Scripture says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags to God when it's righteousness on our own. We are detestable. They are detestable. They are disobedient. They are unfit for any good work. So those who trust in works are unfit for good works, which God desires. The idea of the unfit is that you're a counterfeit. You're not approved. It's not genuine. And so consequently, you cannot bring glory to God. You bring glory to yourself by your own motivations. C.S. Lewis said, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. <laughs> Why is that? Because we dress up the antidote and make the antidote of no effect. Which makes it worse. The antidote being Christ. But you know, here's the good news. Jesus becomes our sin. Jesus becomes our sin. I remember when it hit me that I was like this person. That's talked about. And when I came to Jesus Christ and said, Lord, I need forgiveness in my life. I need grace in my life. I need to stop judging and I need to receive your grace. You know the good thing about that? When Jesus died on the cross, he became my sin. He became hypocrisy. He became legalism. He became judgmentalism. He became these things. He became heresy that we teach. He became dissension. And I... And you, if you trust in Christ, become righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus. 
Hold on to that. Never let that go. Elders, if you are so called to be an elder in our church, then hold firm this trustworthy word as taught so that you might be able to give instruction and sound doctrine because we want this church to be about Jesus. And there needs to be men who can discern and see the difference and will be committed to that purpose and call it out. Christopher Columbus was stranded in Jamaica and needed supplies. He knew that a lunar eclipse was going to happen the next day. And so he told the tribal chief, unless you give me supplies, the God who protects me will punish you. The moon shall lose its light. When the eclipse darkened the sky, Columbus got all the supplies that he needed. In the early 1900s, an Englishman tried the same trick on a Sudanese chief. And this Englishman said, if you do not follow my orders, he warned, vengeance will fall upon you and the moon will lose its light. The chief replied, if you are referring to the lunar eclipse, that doesn't happen until the day after tomorrow. <laughs> wow. What a, what a letdown. The Sudanese chief was protected from deception because he knew the truth. We are those who have given, been given the gospel. We need to know it. We need to hold on to it. We need to live it. And we need to be able to see the difference between the two. And it starts with your own life. In your own heart. Do you see those tendencies in yourself that wants to go away from the gospel and hold on to pride? Identify it. Call it for what it is. And let us all confess and repent that before the Lord. Let's pray.